0: Welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. I've got my Bible open to John chapter one and verse fourteen. It says, "And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of only as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth." So, what is the meaning of the incarnation of Christ? You now, incarnation is a is a term that theologians use to to tell us that Jesus, the Son of God, took on human flesh, and that's what we're going to talk about today, and we're going to talk about the incarnation in light of the image of God. My guest is a, professor, a philosopher and theologian, probably a professor, too, Ken Samples. He's a regular on the show. We get him once a month, and he uh, he loves talking about the reasonableness and relevance of Christianity's truth claims. And he's a senior research fellow at Reasons to Believe. He's authored several books, including Classic Christian Thinkers, Seven Truths That Changed the World, and God Among Sages. Ken, welcome back. Good to be with you, Bill. Uh, I love uh, the subject that we're on today, as we uh, are anticipating the Christmas coming up. And I want to start with the... uh, the term incarnation. Now, I've also heard the, the term hypostatic union. Those are different, yeah. aren't they?
2: Yes, the word incarnation, of course, is a Latin term, so it doesn't come out of the New Testament, which was written in Greek, but the Greek uses the term sarx, which means flesh. So, in the very passage you read, John 1.14 says that Jesus has come in the flesh. So, incarnation, a carnivore eats flesh. So the incarnation is Jesus, who is the second person of the Trinity, took a human nature and became a real man. He had a real human nature. Now, hypostatic union is a very important uh, idea, but it refers more to the unity of Jesus's deity and humanity in the person of Christ. So Christians said in the ancient world, greek-speaking christians they would call jesus the theanthropos the god man and so uh he's a single person with both the divine and human nature
0: Mm -hmm. so is that pretty much what we're calling the the incarnation the doctrine of it is that pretty much it in a nutshell
2: yes um and i and i i would underscore bill how how important it is um the idea that God would become man, that, uh, um, you know, all the religions, you have people who are kind of groping for God, but in historic Christianity, you have an actual incarnation where (laughs) God comes from heaven to the earth and encounters the human condition, and I think the implications are just just vast. Uh, I mentioned just one, and I'm sure we'll talk about more, but you know, I know that God knows what it's like to suffer because God was in Christ mm-hmm. and he suffered with us and for us. So it's a, a a tremendous truth that sets Christianity apart from all of the other religions.
0: Yeah, Ken, I, I didn't mean to oversimplify things when I just said, is that kind of it in a nutshell? I was just kind of talking about the term incarnation. Yeah. Now, the process of it is mind-blowing, and we can, uh, we'll talk about that the whole hour. But just the term incarnation is basically just the Son of God taking on human flesh that is the That's, essence of it right
2: yes very much
0: okay so um let's keep talking about the the, the doctrine then of it and the fact that uh, it is so mind blowing that god from the beginning of time of which there is no beginning of time i you know it's so hard to describe him that he would uh, come in the form of flesh um and that was the incarnation
2: yeah and it's 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 uh it's a again a very powerful uh belief that our messiah our savior he was none other than than god himself mm-hmm. and as we look at the old testament um, you know we we recognize that there is this this savior that is to come and uh, he does in in philippians 2 it says he didn't hold on to his status in heaven but but he became and it's an interesting word there in Philippians 2 bill it says that he became a bondservant or he became a slave that is to step out of heaven to depart from the, his glorious reign and to become a man uh, th- this is a you know this is a step down so to speak mm-hmm. so i i think it's uh I just think it's such an important doctrine, and it it's what we celebrate. Um, uh, many churches call it the Advent season. Advent means coming, and it culminates in Christmas Day, where we celebrate that uh, Jesus was born in the womb of the Virgin Mary and took took a human nature.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, Ken, when I when we think of the nature of God as um, Jesus as God and also as man. Jesus claims to be the Son of God. That's why they killed him. And then I think of verses like in John chapter 8.40 that says, But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's important um, doctrinally and theologically, Bill, to appreciate that uh, the New Testament teaches both that Jesus is God and, and man. I mean, in John 8, he says he is the I Am, which is the most sacred name of God used in the Old Testament. But there are many places where he makes it very clear that he's also a human being. And I I think uh, what's important about thinking through these kinds of issues is when the Jehovah's Witnesses knock on my door, and they want to tell me that, no, Jesus isn't God, only Jehovah's God. And they'll point me to these passages where Jesus says the the Father is greater than I, or that Jesus doesn't know the timing of his of his second coming. And I have to point out to them, well, now realize that Jesus is also a human being, and uh, there are times he is speaking through his human consciousness, and other times he's referencing his divine consciousness.
1: Hmm.
0: So, Ken, maybe we can start uh, just talking about the biblical basis uh, for affirming that Jesus was God in the flesh.
2: Yeah, there's a there's a great, uh, good number of passages. Um, let me read John 1, 1 through 3. It says, in the beginning, which is clearly a reference to Genesis 1. John is is echoing that first passage of the Old Testament. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And so Jesus is the Word. He is with God and was God. So there is a plurality of persons we see there in eternity. It also says that the Word is the Creator. And then, you know, the remarkable passage that you read, and the Word became flesh and made his dwelling uh, among us. So God, the Word who is with the Father, uh, who was the creator, took a human nature. Here, Here's another remarkable passage in Philippians 2. I alluded to it earlier, Philippians 2, 5 through 7. Uh, Paul says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, well, this is, is actually—New uh, Testament scholars believe that this passage actually reflects a hymn, a primitive hymn that was sung by the Jewish Christians uh, long, long before any Gentiles came into the church, and notice what it says, that he uh, was very nature God, didn't consider his equality, equality with God, something to hold on to or to reserve for himself. But he came a servant, being made in human likeness. Paul says that's the attitude we should have. If the Son of God can come down and live as a servant, what does that then say about what should motivate us as as servants? Uh, and and let me uh, let me mention one more passage here. Um, I mentioned that uh, in the book of Isaiah, uh, Yahweh the lord god yahweh elohim the hebrew uh the lord god almighty he likes to be called i am or i am he that's a reference to his eternality we can we can echo that back to the book of exodus uh where you have moses before the burning bush god is being itself it's not like he's a being he is being and uh what what happens is he refers to himself as i am in John 8:58 and 59 Jesus has a very intense conversation with the religious leaders of the time they're exasperated with him and finally they ask him who are you who are you and he says well before Abraham came into being I am using that sacred name verse 59 they pick up stones to stone him because because those listening to him know that the, that's a sacred name mm-hmm. that only is applied to God. So this this is some of the pieces of evidence that lead historic Christians to embrace Jesus as uh, as the God-man.
0: Wow. What a great way to start, Ken. I'm going to take a little break. Ken Samples is my guest. We're talking about the Incarnation... Um, And we're going to continue back in just about 90 seconds, but we're also welcoming your questions if you have one. Send me a text to 877-933-2484. Again, that number is 877-933-2484. Be right back.
1: You are listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold: Faith, Hope, and Clarity in a special repeat performance. Show.
0: so glad to have Ken Samples as my guest. He's a theologian and philosopher, and we are uh, jumping into the topic today of the incarnation in light of the image of God. And Ken, when I look through uh, Scripture, I, you know, there is so much obviously biblical support for the humanity of Jesus. We learn that he uh, needs sleep and food and at times physical protection, and that he perspired and bled and had all these human emotions. You know, we hear about, we talked about this on the show yesterday, about just the emotions, the joy and sorrow and anger and all of this. So uh, there's quite a a detailed documentation of his humanity in the Gospels, which is, uh, in my opinion, very exciting to read about.
2: Yes, absolutely. Uh, You know, Jesus is not only called a man, but as you mentioned, he has qualities and characteristics of of, uh, being human. Um, He experiences the full range of human emotions—love, fear. Uh, He he feared uh, crucifixion. Um, He was angered. Um, And and he has ancestors. Uh, he has a family, and I think all of these are very important. And and as we emphasize his deity, we don't want to underscore the humanity because that that's so critical. That uh, Jesus has both of these two natures that are that are united together. And and again, I I think of Christmas time, Bill, and I it, to kind of bring a, a practical component. Um, You know, 2020 has been a tough year for a lot of people. A lot of people are hurting physically, emotionally, financially. I've noticed uh, for a long time that during the Christmas year, people carry around a lot of pain to to be able to communicate to someone, you know, that God has visited this planet and uh, Jesus was God in human flesh and he knows what it's like. Uh, to face the difficulties and trials. Uh, And when we pray to him, we're not praying to someone who is distant and far away. He's not Allah, where we can't touch him, where we can't get to him. And so while we've been talking about uh, biblical texts and we've been talking about Christian doctrine, all of this has very real application to living the Christian life, to our witness, uh, and to the things that we can be thankful for—that uh, God has not left us alone; He He's come looking for us—and uh, that's what makes me excited about celebrating Christmas, um, and 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 the recognition of of a, a Messiah who has has come looking for us. I think all of this is really exciting.
0: Well, I agree, and the purpose of the incarnation was to be the Savior of mankind.
2: That's exactly right. And again, we start to see the the system of Christian thought that because Jesus is both God and man, he can represent both God and man. And because he's God and man, he can reconcile God and man. Uh, He can speak for God, and he can can also play the role of uh, the one who will accept Uh, the wrath of God. And so, um, again, I don't think theology and doctrine is something that is boring, and I don't think it is distant from Christian application. I think the more we know about the person and nature and work of Christ, the more exciting our faith becomes, and the more we're warmed by this, these great truths and want to share them with others.
0: Mm-hmm. And Ken, when I look at a verse like Galatians 4.4 4, that says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. And of course, if I understand this verse correctly, that Christ came in the flesh uh, under the law to fulfill the law on our behalf.
2: Yes, that's such a remarkable passage. Uh, you know, another thing we can say about Jesus' is humanity, he had a mother, he was born,
1: mm-hmm.
2: uh, he had a real physical body. Uh, there are cults and heresies that have tried to say, well, Jesus didn't really, he wasn't really a human being, because uh, the docetists, the Gnostics, they valued the spirit uh, rather than the flesh. But that passage there in Galatians that that he is born under the law one of the one of the great truths is that Jesus has uh in comparing Jesus with with Adam so Adam the first Adam to the second Adam uh Jesus has fulfilled all of the things that that Adam broke uh Jesus has fulfilled the law and he has fulfilled the law on our behalf. And a remarkable thing, when God looks at us, he sees us clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Well, there's only been one person in the history of the world that's ever lived out the values of the Sermon on the Mount, and it's Jesus. And and uh, he's fulfilled the law on our behalf. Again, very encouraging and exciting thing, because uh, I'm like all of you. I uh, I have— failed to love God. I've failed to love my neighbor as myself. Uh, I've never fulfilled completely and totally uh, the Ten Commandments, and yet Jesus is has sacrificed his life. And so all of this is tied up into the incarnation.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: then when I think of a verse like in John 10, verse 39, it says, again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. You think they they are He was always under the, uh, you know, the authorities wanted to kill him, and his disciples were sometimes confused by him. They didn't always understand what he was saying. And then his uh, family thought at one point he was like had lost his mind and he was homeless. So, you know, I think all of us can put ourselves in that narrative somewhere.
2: I think that's gr- that's a great point, Bill. Um, Jesus knows what it's like to be misunderstood. <laughs> yeah. Jesus knows what it's like to have family problems. Oh yeah. Uh, uh, you know, the 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 other thing, Jesus knew what it was like to go to work. Uh, I'm sure if you shook hands with him, you'd know immediately the kind of work that he did. He was a carpenter. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I think that component of Jesus's humanity is. Very critical. I don't want to skip over the humanity uh, because of the glorious deity. It's it's the two natures coming together that we see. And and again, um, if we can relate it to where we are at in our own life, um, you know, when I'm hurting, I wanna I wanna know somebody who can empathize with me. I I wanna know somebody who has who's lived what I've lived. Well. Uh, Jesus has done that. He 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 not only suffered for us, but he suffered with us as a human being.
0: Mm. And I right now I am in the third chapter of Mark, and I, I was reading this verse this morning in my quiet time, so I will read it again. And starting in verse 20, then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered. So that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, "He is out of his mind."
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, imagine, uh, imagine uh, your family thinking that you are mentally ill. Yes. Um, and and as many things as as Mary saw, Mar- Mary, the mother of Jesus. She saw many supernatural things connected with her son, and yet she was still uh, confused and and didn't clearly understand his mm-hmm. his identity. And so, uh, yeah, that that's a, that's a remarkable thing that that people would think. And and I think that Bill this ties into his claims of deity. He, of course, he was claiming divine claims. That's why they thought he is. You know, he's he's lost his mind.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Um, let's talk about Christian theology. How does how does Christian theology connect the incarnation with the image of God? This might be a, a bigger subject than I have time left in this uh segment, but let's get started.
2: Well, let me let me put it in a summary way, Bill. Um, you know, the Bible says about a half a diff half a dozen different times in the old and new testament that human beings are made in the image of God. Uh, Genesis 1, 26 through 28, that God created humans in his image, male and female, he created them. Uh, it's mentioned in other places in Genesis. James in the New Testament mentions it. Um, and I think the the, the great uh, point that is made is the reason God made humans in his image is because he always planned to become one of us. Hmm. That is, in creation, there was already God planning. Uh, He's going to allow for humans to rebel, but he's going to rescue them by becoming a human being. Now, you know, could God become a cat or a dog? Well, there are other religions who make those claims, like Hinduism. But you see that making humans in his image facilitated the incarnation. He could take a human nature because that nature Reflected already the image of God, and uh, there's nothing more important in terms of human beings than than this idea of we have dignity and value because we're made in God's image.
0: That's such an incredible thought, Ken. I mean, I almost just want to pause for a second and and just reflect on that because it it is absolutely amazing that we are made in His image, and I've heard that a million times, but I I never get tired of hearing it.
2: Yeah. In a, in a time where there are people feeling like they're not treated fairly because of their race or because of their gender, or because of their class standing, mm-hmm. there is this teaching that all human beings have dignity and value because they're made in the image of the Creator.
0: Yeah. All right. We'll take a little break. When we come back, lots more with uh, Ken's samples. If you have a question about the incarnation We are absolutely open to hearing from you, 877-933-2484. I'll ask on your behalf. If you're more comfortable with email, you can email me, bill at myfaithradio.com, and I'll get your question that way as well. 877-933-2484. We'll be right back.
1: You're listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. Ken Samples
0: is my guest for the whole hour. He's a philosopher, and theologian. You can go to reasons.org to learn more about Ken. He's um, a senior research fellow there at Reasons to Believe and authored several books, including Classic Christian Thinkers, Seven Truths That Changed the World, and God Among Sages. Today, we're talking about the incarnation in light of the image of God. So, fascinating discussion so far. I would love for you maybe to talk about what other doctrinal truths are connected to the Incarnation. There must be many.
2: Yeah, this is, uh, you know, in theology, we we talk about different branches of theology. We talk about biblical theology or exegetical theology leading out the meaning of biblical passages. But there's also other uh, areas of theology, historical, philosophical, and systematic. And as we begin to think about the system of Christian theology, well, because people are made in the image of God, that facilitates the incarnation. So Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, can take a human nature and become man. So the Imago Dei, Latin for image of God, facilitates the Incarnation. But the Incarnation tells us something about the Trinity, that it's the Father who sends the Son into the world. It is the Son that accomplishes salvation and says from the cross, it is finished, it's complete. Then the Holy Spirit comes. Uh, Jesus says in in John uh, 14 and 15 that he's going to send the Comforter uh, who is greater than He? Well, how could He? How could anybody be greater than the Son? But the Spirit, because of His, uh, the Spirit's not limited by humanity. So we we see the Trinity in light of the divinity. We we also, as we alluded to earlier, we see the we see the atonement. Because Jesus is God and man, the the fundamental problem with human beings is they're cut off from God, they're alienated, they're separated from God. Jesus can represent humanity and divinity and bring the two and reconcile the two together. And so I like to say that Jesus could do what he did in terms of salvation because he was who he was in terms of his his identity as both God and man. And so, uh, unlike Jehovah's Witnesses and unlike other religions, God doesn't make a creature uh, responsible for salvation. The Old Testament, the book of Isaiah says, only God can save us. Well, Jesus saves us. Athanasius, the great Christian thinker who defended the deity of Christ, he says, well, if only God can save and Jesus saves, then Jesus must be God. Hmm.
0: When I think of Hebrews chapter two, verse nine, and it says, but we do see Jesus who is made lower than the angels for a little while now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So his temporary status, as we see when he was on earth, he had a status, if I have this correct,
2: a little lower than that of the angels. Yeah, and again, this uh, Hebrew passage in light of the Philippians passage, that uh, Jesus heaven is his home. He is, he is God, equal with the Father and the Son, and yet he voluntarily becomes man. He, right. he is, he is lower than than the angelic realm, and and becomes man. And you know, we think about we think about limitations. I mean, imagine God taking the nature of a creature. Imagine God who knows all things, has all power, this glorious being taking the nature of a, a bondservant, uh, the humility in Christ. And of course, Paul picks that up and says, well you know there's infighting in the church well why don't you make Jesus your your ideal uh person um think of his humility think think of what he was willing to give up rather than hold on to so again i think uh, i think the doctrine of the incarnation not only gives us great encouragement in life but i think it also helps us to recognize our own place that uh if Jesus could become a servant and and be lower than the angels, um, then it may be okay for us uh, to be servants and uh, not always have the head seat at the table.
0: Yeah, good point, Ken. Is there another doctrinal truth we can chew on connected to the incarnation? This is just so fascinating.
2: Well, i I think if you uh, I think if you think of it even further, I think that what we begin to see is that that uh, the church. Uh, is the is is the bride of Christ, and uh, you know this this again kind of brings it together. Uh, it talks about um, uh, you know men ought to love their wives as Christ loved the church. It, it seems like every particular area of importance when it comes to Christianity, uh, we see it through the prism of the identity of the person of Christ, and so people have said that Christianity is Christ, and and there's no way to adopt a merely human Jesus and make him the savior because we would be worshiping a creature. But and and so why is why is Christmas? We again we call the season Advent. Why why is it important? I think because everything that really is important passes through the prism of the identity of the person of Jesus Christ. And so it's very appropriate that he is our Savior, uh, he is our model, uh, he He is the one who gives us life. And um, again, I think that's uh, like what you're doing, t- reading through Scripture, looking at these key passages, and then tying them together— that the identity of our Savior really is critical to Him being the Savior at all.
0: Kenna, there are a lot of religions that uh, deny the Christ-true humanity.
2: Yeah. Um, you know, very early on in the Church, uh, there was a group called the Docetist. It's, it's a term that means to seem, and this Docetistic group Uh, became the Gnostic group. And Gnosticism says that spirit is good and matter is evil. Hmm. And uh, these early Gnostics, Docetists, they said that when Jesus walked near the Sea of Galilee, he didn't leave any footprints in the sand. This is why John in 1 John says, you know, that only those who say Jesus has come in the flesh are really of God— already, even during the time of the apostles, there are people uh, denying the the humanity of Christ. And there are groups, of course, who come to differing views. I mean, in Islam, for example, they don't believe that humans are made in the image of God, because that would put us way too close to Allah. But notice what Christianity does. Christianity makes humans in his image because God always plans to to have that union. And um, again, there are are other groups. Uh, Hinduism, for example, has the idea of an avatar where you'll have an appearance of the divine uh, in the human context. But when we look carefully, uh, the avatars sometimes become incarnate as animals. Uh, There are other times where it's repeated over and, and over, There's never really a union of humanity and deity. And so uh, even in Hinduism, which tries to talk about an avatar, it's still very different than the Christian understanding.
0: Mm -hmm. So, Ken, when Jesus does things to demonstrate that he is God and he also accepts the worship of God, that's when the Pharisees went just about bonkers, didn't they?
2: yeah and this this is a whole nother set of evidence for the for Jesus being the god man you know he he not only makes certain claims um but he seems to he seems to think that he has the prerogatives of deity
1: mm-hmm. uh,
2: you know he he's he says, Your sins are forgiven and and these are Jews who cut their teeth reading the Torah and they say, Well, who could forgive sin but God alone' Jesus claims to forgive sin. He uh he allows people to worship him in a first century Jewish context, no creature could ever accept that. But uh you know Paul and Barnabas won't let people worship them, but but in Matthew 28 Jesus accepts worship. He claims to be able to judge humanity. Well, who could ever judge The creatures that God has made, but God himself. Mm -hmm. So Jesus has these prerogatives of deity. I like to say that, you know, the only person who can do the things that God can do is God. Jesus claims to do the things that only God can do. Therefore, Jesus is God.
0: Mm -hmm. Ken, when I was looking through some of the prep for our discussion today, you said that you'd be willing to talk about the Council of Chalcedon and and the Creed of Chalcedon. And I got a little bit uh, like, uh-oh, I'm not going to know a lot about this, so you're going to have to fill in a lot of the blanks.
2: Well, let me put it to you this way, that uh, in the early centuries, um, Christianity was challenged by various heretical ideas. I mean, it was happening even while the apostles were living. You had the docetists, uh, the Gnostics that would come later. And so Christians had a need to define uh, very carefully and very clearly who Jesus was and his his divinity. I mean, probably the greatest heresy to, to ever attack Christianity was known as Arianism. Arius was from Alexandra, lived in the third century. He said that uh, Jesus was not God. Uh, God had created Jesus, and then through Jesus created the world, very similar, almost identical to the Jehovah's Witnesses. Well, the church— Felt the need to have a council, uh, uh, the Council of Chalcedon, 325. Uh, But by 451, this is the Council of Chalcedon, where the church laid out very carefully uh, a, a creedal statement about the identity of Jesus, that he was both God and man. He was a single person with two distinct natures. These natures didn't mingle. Uh, the humanity didn't pull the divinity down. The divinity didn't divinize the humanity. And so the Church felt a great need uh, to make it very clear to the ancient world who the person of Christ was. And so if you go on Google and type in uh, the Council of Chalcedon 451, you'll see a statement about the divinity and the humanity of Christ.
0: Wow, that's very interesting. So if we don't have the Incarnation— there is no way that Christ, um, you know, if, if no incarnation, no Christ's death on the cross, the cross is then meaningless. There is no Christian faith. There is no salvation. There is nothing.
2: I I do think that Jesus can only do what he did in terms of soteriology. Mm-hmm. Soter is savior. Jesus could only do what he did in terms of salvation because of his identity, because he was both God and man. And and again, um, you know, in the Trinity, God doesn't force anybody else to save us. God does it all. The Father, who we, we seldom talk about the Father in terms of the direct atonement, but it's the Father who sends the Son into the world. The Son adopts that... Uh, that emptying of self, we talked about Philippians, the the lowering, leaving his home in heaven, becoming man, accomplishing salvation, and then the uh, at the day of Pentecost, the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. I mean, we we see in the New Testament, Bill, and one of the I think this is one of the strongest evidence in the New Testament for the Trinity. There is a tri triadic pattern. Where the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are their names are used interchangeably in terms of equality, and so uh, unlike Jehovah's Witnesses, unlike Islam, unlike other religions, uh, God doesn't uh, have a creature do it all. God saves us by Himself, and uh, and so again, I would underscore Jesus can do what He did on the cross because of His divine human identity
0: Mm -hmm. when i look at romans chapter 8 canon it says for god has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according and thinking that jesus of course was sinless but God sent him in the likeness of you and me.
2: Yeah, he is. Uh, you know, he, we when we think about that, we we recognize that Jesus takes a fully human nature. He's born into the world. Um, he he is uh, he is sinless, unlike us. Uh, one way we can think about it is Adam, uh, the first. Uh, created by God, plunged humanity into sin, the second Adam is able to rescue us. Mm -hmm. And so, again, very important to recognize these as historical events. Some would like to maybe suggest Adam was a myth, but if there's no first Adam, how can we talk about a second Adam?
0: Yeah. Let me take one more short break. Ken Samples is my guest. We're talking about the incarnation today. It's amazing discussion. We'll be right back.
1: You're listening to an Encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. Welcome back to the show.
0: So glad to have Ken Samples with me. Uh, We're going to have, coming up in the second hour today, stories behind the great traditions of Christmas with Ace Collins. So I'm looking forward to that as well. But today with um, Ken, we're talking about uh, the incarnation in light of the image of God and theologians would say incarnation um, is really what uh, when jesus took on human flesh and so i had a question from a listener ken that said what is reincarnation i know you can answer that quickly
2: yeah it's the you know it's the same word carnivore flesh reincarnation to be put back in the flesh again and so in eastern religion particularly Hinduism. You're born into the world, you live, you build up karma, you die, and you're put back, you're reincarnated. Uh, Christians don't believe in reincarnation, but we believe in the incarnation of the Son of God.
0: Mm -hmm. Well said. All right, let's talk about the Advent season some more, because this is uh, coming upon us quickly. And let's talk about uh, what exactly it is and how we connect it to living our, our faith. Our our Christian life,
2: yeah, very good. Uh, you know the the Bible says that our lives are are buried in God in Christ, and the early church, and this is reflected by some of the more liturgical type of churches. Uh, we have in church history a church calendar, and uh, the calendar begins with Advent because that's when God has taken human flesh, and it is through His uh, his birth into the world, uh, that that we have this Advent, uh, but all of that points to the end of the calendar. The end of the calendar is Good Friday and Easter Sunday, and so Advent is uh, the the celebration that God has taken a human nature and become man, uh, born into the world. Our our Savior has finally come, uh, and so the early Christians, uh, in and some traditions have more devotion to Advent than others. Some churches are more liturgical than than other, but virtually every church uh, celebrates Christmas, uh, the, the actual day or the day representing the birth of Jesus. Uh, and so uh, I think Advent is a very exciting time of year. It it is this uh, this idea that God has fulfilled His promise, and just as He fulfilled His promise to come at Christmas, He's made another promise to come again, His second time, mm-hmm. and uh, we look with anticipation for that, uh, even in light of Advent.
0: And Christians will often speak of Christ's first advent and second advent. And of That's the, exactly
2: right. the yeah. first
0: would be the incarnation, correct, and the correct. second would be His return.
2: Yeah and in the first advent he comes in in a very lowly way. He is uh he he's you know in a stable. Um Jesus comes um uh and and he's there he's even receives criticism later in his public ministry, you know, what good could come from Nazareth, you mm-hmm. know, this lowly place. But the second time he comes, he'll come in glory. Um and so again tying this together. His first coming will lead ultimately to his second coming. And this is a time, I think, uh, maybe to take our eyes off ourselves and realize that God does indeed love us. He entered human history on our part, um, that we have lots to be thankful for, uh, and recognize that uh, there are a lot of hurting people in 2020. The pandemic is a world pandemic, I think this is a time where we can offer people real hope, uh, real encouragement, and and to recognize, Bill, that people have lots of hurts, and sometimes during the holidays it hurts even more because uh, we don't have we don't all have loved ones, and some of us don't receive the kind of uh, care and concern that that other people do.
0: Mm-hmm. Can not all Christians? celebrate Advent, but isn't celebrating Advent just a, a good reminder of what the season is all about?
2: I think it certainly is. It, it is true that uh, there are some churches that, that don't have much of an Advent or Christmas orientation. Um, I enjoy it. I love it. I love all of the biblical passages <laughs> that are read. I, I love hearing the the hymns. I love hearing the Christmas carols. And I'll tell you, Bill, some of those Christmas carols, I was in a shop, I was in Target shopping 10, 12 years ago, and I heard one of the Christmas carols sung, and I thought, my gosh, the theology in that carol, you could be saved by listening to the carol by itself.
0: So true. Yeah, that is, (laughs) it is so true. And then what about some, some of the Advent traditions, like uh, the colors when they put up um, like a liturgical color of Purple or uh, sometimes a a nice royal blue, and then they change those colors throughout the uh, third and fourth Sunday of Advent.
2: Yeah, there there is a whole tradition that many churches uh, embrace: Uh, the lighting of the various candles in in the weeks of Advent, the representation that Jesus is the light of the world who has come in. Uh, Advent has particular colors uh, that are that that kind of purple color that is devoted. So it, it there is a, a lot of ceremony, and and of course some people are a bit turned off by ceremony, but other people like it and enjoy it. And uh, I know I grew up um, with with a, a real pleasure of of Christmas, and uh, it doesn't have to be merely commercial. It can be a, a time when we think very deeply about the great events of God entering into the world uh, for the very purpose of loving us.
0: Yeah, and Ken, it, it's a, this is a fun little tidbit I'd like to share. My guest that I have coming up in the next hour, Ace Collins, he's written a, bo- a book about the, the traditions of Christmas, and he also uh, does a lot of call-in shows on both secular and Christian radios telling about these traditions. And over the years, he said to me that he tracked the most asked-about songs on each format regarding the traditions of christmas songs. So with <laughs> that That's as a cool. backdrop, um, when he is on a secular radio station, the songs that are inquired about the most on a secular radio station is oh holy night. Wow. When he's on a, when he's on a christian radio station, the songs that the song that is most inquired about is grandma got run over by a reindeer.
2: <laughs> well, that, that self-explanatory, I'll tell you a little story. My dad, uh, <laughs> he fought in the Second World War, and during the Christmas period of 1944, he was at the Battle of the Bulge. It was the coldest winter in 100 years. My dad told me he could hear even the German soldiers singing Christmas hymns. Mm,
0: that's so beautiful. Yeah, and I think my my point about uh, what Ace shared with me, is this is a wonderful season where people are spiritually hungry. You know, you've got people on secular radio asking about All oh, Holy Night. There's a spiritual hunger out there, and the fact that we've got five or six weeks to think about Christmas, let's take full advantage of that in sharing the joy that we have in our hearts about the coming of our Savior.
2: I, I think it facilitates uh, some good evangelism. I think it'll give us opportunities to, to explain and defend our faith, and it will give us an opportunity to be grateful to God and to and to think about the things that are deeply important in our life. Mm-hmm.
0: Ken, I don't think I'm going to speak to you again until after Christmas. So Merry Christmas to you and your family, and I look forward to chatting with you uh, after the first of the year.
2: Merry Christmas, Bill.
0: Thank you so much. Ken Samples has been my guest. You can go to reasons.org, to learn more about Ken. We'll take a little break and be back with more in just a minute.